together, hopefully. Amen. Oh, thank you. Well, good morning. I don't know what it is, but I watched you all come in this morning, and we all just look, a, with a couple of exceptions, we look a little sleepy today. Now, it's my practice to let's blame the weather, so we'll go with that, but uh, it's also, as a, as a pastor, your self-esteem is wrongly sometimes wrapped up in how many people you put to sleep in the course of your sermon. So I would really appreciate it if over the next few minutes you'd try to stay awake with me. It'd make me feel better about myself and we realize that this is all about me, right? So it is absolutely not at all about me. It is a joy to gather together and worship. It is a joy to do so with friends, with fellow Christians, with fellow, if you looked at the history of the church, fellow followers of the way, of the person of Jesus Christ, because we're told, as we looked at last week, we've been adopted as co-heirs with Christ, those of us who know him. But as we began our series last week, we began looking at how did Jesus go about his journey toward the cross in the, the last week of his earthly life before he was crucified and, and rose again victoriously? And we're going to move ahead a couple of days. We'll come back next week and look at this idea of betrayal. Uh, but we're going to move ahead to the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, because tradition in our church, and I love tradition, tradition in our church says on the first Sunday of every month, we take communion together. Uh, and so why not look at how this started the Sunday we actually fellowship around the communion table. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 this morning. And I'm going to read for you. I don't have it on the screen because I just want you to listen to the story and try to imagine yourself here. Try to imagine yourself in Upper Jerusalem with all that's going on, not necessarily knowing all that we know about the account. Maybe we take away all of our knowledge now because many of us that come to church have a pretty good idea of the Easter story. But what if we didn't? What if we were watching all of this unfold before us and we didn't have an idea? Well, that's kind of what Luke is trying to do in his gospel. He's trying to explain all of this to likely Gentiles or those that had no idea of how all of this would have gone on. So Luke gives us a lot of explanation. Luke gives us a lot of detail. And I love that. And we're going to look at that now. So Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to start with verse 1. If you'd like a Bible, if you don't have one with you, they are available in the back and the ushers would gladly hand you one. Just put up your hand and they'll get it for you. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup... He gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, you will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Lord, this is such a foundational passage of Scripture for our understanding of who you are and what you've done and how you've made a way for us, and how we haven't earned our way to you. And so I ask that you would open our eyes this morning, that you would teach us, that my words would be few, and that yours many. We love you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. This week a study was released in the Wall Street Journal. They do it every year, looking at Uh, the cost of luxury in different cities all over the world. And I don't know if you saw it, uh, but this year Hong Kong jumped onto the list because of our exorbitant rent prices and because of everything that goes with us. So we should be very proud that it's getting more and more expensive to live in this city. And so they went through some luxury items such as, uh, and remember the Wall Street Journal is an American publication, so these are in U.S. dollars, but they realize that if you try to buy a gallon of fresh milk, which you don't even buy here, you buy a liter, uh, but if you tried to buy a gallon of fresh milk, it would cost you about 10 U.S. dollars. No wonder it is such a luxury for my wife to buy me fresh milk. And then they went on to some other things. But on the, the fourth column over, they listed how many Michelin-starred restaurants we have in our city. And amazingly, we're in the top two or three cities in the world. New York, Paris, and Hong Kong. And what that goes to tell us is that we like to eat in Hong Kong. But we don't just like to eat. We like to eat well. And I started thinking about that, and I was like, you know, you're right. You look around someplace like in Wampo, or really anywhere in Hong Kong, and there are restaurants everywhere. Within literally 30 seconds walk, I think you can eat in roughly 10 different places. Five of them in the same building. We like to eat, and Hong Kong's culture is one where you don't just go eat by yourself. I love that. 
constantly people are eating meals together. And when we were preparing to come, we were studying books to try to teach us about Hong Kong culture and what it's like. And they said people love to eat out. And I couldn't understand that because in, American, in America, we love to eat in and try to have people in our home. But then when you move to a small flat, you want to get out of it and stretch your arms. And so you go out together for a meal. And then you keep eating, and you keep eating, and you keep eating, and you enjoy this great time together, hopefully. And it's this, it's this idea that we love to spend time in social interaction. I think it's why hot pot is so popular, because you just keep throwing food in for hours. And it doesn't matter what it is, just throw it in, it'll come out tasting good. Or it's why we like dim sum, because you just keep eating a little bit, and you don't realize that those little bits have caught up, and you've eaten a lot. But you've enjoyed it together with friends or with family. And it is a special thing, and it's a special part of the culture here that I absolutely love. Whether I like the food or not doesn't matter. We're together. We're in community. We're enjoying fellowship together with those, hopefully, we love and enjoy spending time with. But then you get to the end of the meal. And if you haven't been invited, you've just decided to go, this starts to happen. Somebody grabs their wallet and is kind of watching around to see who else is grabbing their wallets, right? And in the process, everybody's kind of acting like, make sure they see me getting it, but hopefully they'll get the bill on that side. And there's this, there's this push-pull of who's going to pay the bill this week. And you don't want to be the guy that doesn't offer, right? But at the same time, you've eaten and you've eaten and you've eaten and you've enjoyed this wonderful meal. And then somebody else steps in and says, I got this. Not going to lie to you, the food just automatically tastes way better then, doesn't it? Because it's a gift. Not only did you enjoy fellowship together, but you didn't have to pay the price to enjoy that, did you? No, somebody else covered you. Somebody else paid the bill. Now, what if we were to take this to the extreme? There's a, a restaurant on the top of the peninsula, the very top, called Felix. And what if you walked in there, you have to, I think you have to have a jacket on to go in, I can't remember. You go in there, you sit down, and you order everything you can find on that menu. And you just order steak, filet mignon, you order shark's fin soup, I don't know if they serve that there, but it's expensive, so we'll go with it. You order all this stuff, and then they bring you the bill, and you look at it, and you've enjoyed the wonderful bonuses of this amazing restaurant and this amazing chef and you look at the bill and you realize there is no way I could ever pay all of this amount back. There's no way I could ever wash enough dishes to pay for this meal. I'm sunk. I can't possibly pay. And then out of nowhere, somebody walks up doesn't get a credit card, doesn't say somebody will pay for it eventually, but just hands a wad of cash, more than you've ever seen, and says, I got this. You're covered. Enjoy your meal. In fact, go enjoy dessert too. You would be amazed at the grace, at the love, at the generosity that someone else offered. As we come today to the communion table, 
we get a picture of what was about to transpire with Jesus in his last days, with Jesus and his disciples. Because when the hour came, Jesus and his disciples sat down and had a meal together. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. It's clear Jesus knew what was coming. It's clear Jesus knew that the very reason he was walking this earth was coming to fruition. His time to suffer was here. And it was at the Passover that it had this tremendous picture of who Jesus is. Because we have to understand the significance of the Passover. We often call Jesus the Lamb of God, right? You know, do we understand what that title really meant? It, it meant just everything. And when you added the fact that Jesus was celebrating the Passover with those that were his disciples, with those he loved, it takes on this tremendous value because when we understand how the Passover was practiced, we actually did a, a Passover Seder last year and I've learned a lot more since then and hopefully in a, a couple years we'll try it again. But it was, it was not only a, a set of very clear steps for the Israelites or Jewish people to take to remember what God had done on their behalf, but it was also done as a reminder of who God is and what their response to him should be. And Jesus wanted this to be the occasion where he begins to demonstrate to his disciples how it's changing, how it's moving from external tradition to internal transformation. You see, as they got ready for the preparation, we notice a couple of things. First, it was the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover, and it was approaching. And the priests, the teachers of the law, the bad guys of our story were looking for a way to corner Jesus, to get him killed, to get him out of the picture. Don't, don't mistake their motives. They wanted Jesus gone. And we see that Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers and discussed how they might betray him. And they were delighted to give him money. You'll help us kill him? We'll throw money at you. We'll give you the silver you want. But then the day came which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. It's interesting because you get... If you read between the lines, Jesus sent two guys off by themselves to go take care of it. And what that signifies, one, Jesus was keeping things very quiet. At this point in the story, in the narrative of Jesus' ministry and life, people were out to kill him. He had to be careful of where he walked. He had to be careful of who knew where he was going and when. And part of that was he was going to celebrate the Passover together this one more time with his disciples. But he also knew full well that Judas was seeking to betray him at a time when there wasn't a big crowd because crowds would have gotten in the way and could have potentially, I mean, he's been ushered in as a king, remember? The crowd could keep the betrayal from being successful. However, if they could do it in a quiet setting when no one was around, something like a Passover celebration 
it'd be much better. Jesus knew that. And so instead of, instead of sending all the 12, he sends two. He sends Peter and John, who we hear so much about. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he calls himself Peter, the rock on which I will build my church. And so they go off. And Jesus tells them as they go off how it's going to happen. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. What's the big deal? Men can carry water, right? Yes. Well, how in the world are these disciples going to go find one guy carrying water during the Passover week, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, men didn't carry jars of water. Women did. Men carried skins of water. So when the disciples walked and when they went to where Jesus told, they would see a man sticking out because he would be carrying a jar. It wouldn't be normal. It would be different. And so they found him. And the room was prepared just as Jesus had ordained it. And more amazingly was, if you know about the Passover celebration of the Hebrew people, the historian Josephus estimated that over 3 million people came into Jerusalem on this week. Now, his figure is, is known to be kind of like when we estimate who protested here in Hong Kong. It's grossly exaggerated. Others have said it was closer to two to 500,000, which was still way over capacity for a small city like Jerusalem at that time. Whatever the number, massive crowds of people were coming into Jerusalem, as was Jesus. And so these disciples went, and they got the lamb ready. And how it would work would be on the day of Passover, you would show up, and you would, you would do your work until noon, then you would take a three-hour break, and then at three o'clock, the gates to the temple would open, and they would open in waves for people to come in and bring their sacrifice into the temple to be sacrificed, the sacrificial lamb. And they would present it, and normally there is one kind of crew of priests manning the temple. For Passover day, 24 not just 24 priests, but 24 companies of priests to keep up with the demand. And they would go in shifts. You go at 3 o'clock, you go at 4 o'clock, and you go at 5 o'clock until all the lambs have been slaughtered. It was all about the festive preparation. 24 divisions, and their duty was to burn all the leaven that was collected by ceremony the night before and then pause and then begin the ritual sh uh, slaughtering. But the interesting thing about the Passover celebration and sacrifice is that each Israelite slaughtered his own offering. The priest would catch the blood, which was then tossed at the base of the altar. As the offerer left the temple, the slain lamb and its skin was draped over their shoulder. Some of you have seen the picture of Jesus carrying a lamb. Well, imagine it being a, a dead lamb and Peter and John carrying this back to the upper room to continue preparations. I don't know about you, but have you ever smelled roast lamb? Oh, it's good. So you've got to think that Peter and John, as they're making these preparations, are getting hungry. Not so much out of excitement of being with Jesus, but lamb is good. And the, and the Passover was to be a celebration. Why was the Passover such a big deal? Well, 
It was a big deal because of what God has done. When your children ask you, we're told in Exodus, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Now, big deal, right? We don't get it. Well, we should get it because this is, this is massive in our understanding of how things went. One to two families would get together because it takes a lot of people to eat the whole lamb and you couldn't leave any till the next morning. You had to eat it all. And so you would be looking at a group of 10 or more people around a, a, a horseshoe uh, set up series of tables and they would gather together around these three tables and they would recline. That was an act in itself of celebration. They would wear white as a symbol of their pure. I mean, everything, every detail was about the external posture of praising the Lord and worshiping Him for delivering the Israelites from the malicious hand of the Egyptians. And the people for the rest of history were to remember that. And they were to do it with reverence and with worship. It wasn't just that they were saying, whew, that was a close one, now we're free. It was supposed to be a reminder of their obedience and of God's great love that he would deliver them and free them from slavery, from bondage, from the life that they had lived. And then over, over time, over the centuries, the practice became more and more ritualized to what we now have when we call it a Seder meal. You have a series of cups up to four cups. You include bitter herbs to remind you of the pungency of sin. You eat each stage of the meal as a representation of the process. It's all very carefully laid out. But then Jesus does something amazing. In what's, like I said, a highly scripted practice, Jesus begins by making old traditions new. He begins by shifting perspective, by shifting some meaning to a new way. And what's interesting is he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now, we read that and we're like, yeah, Jesus gave himself and we jump straight to the cross. We're already there. You know, we're sitting here thinking, come on, Mike, we don't need to harp on the Passover because we're in the new covenant. Yeah, you're right. No question. That does change everything. But for the disciples, what's he saying? You know, yes, he alluded to some stuff, but the disciples didn't understand what was coming anymore than we would have understood what was coming. But that didn't change Jesus from giving this practice for all to follow until he comes again. And so you got to think that as he gives thanks, and he said, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, he was thinking back to the prophet Isaiah. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Let me say that again. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Deuteronomy tells us even more about this idea of the bread. Sacrifice is the Passover to the Lord your God. An animal from your flock or herd at the place of the door, the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made of yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread. Bread that hasn't risen, you know, so a flat bread, because you left Egypt in haste. So, all that, so that all the days of your life, you remem- may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. You may remember the pain. You re- may remember the fear. You re- may remember the rush and the urgency to need to be delivered. You may remember what God has done and the bread you eat. If you've had unleavened bread, it's not exactly flavorful. And it reminds us of who we were and what God had been bringing us out of. And so when he takes the bread and when he breaks it and said, this is my body broken for you, well, that's just changing everything. Now it's shifted. Now the representation of the bread is to remember Jesus which you got to think the disciples were a little confused about. Huh? I don't get it. Jesus, you're here. Why do we remember you? Well, because he'd alluded. Suffering is coming. They may not have understood it completely, but oh, they would, as do we. And so Jesus is introducing them to remember the pain that was coming, to remember the sin that he would die for, to remember their affliction, but to remember the body of the Savior gave or given so that peace could come to them. To remember this body broken for you. Can you imagine somebody, Jesus tells us later on or or before, there is no greater love than one to give up his life for another. And Jesus is giving up his life for a bunch of people that don't love him, that gladly take and take and take and take and eating at Felix and keep bringing it on, but have no ambition or no desire to pay it back. They couldn't anyway, so why bother trying? We kind of live our lives in response to sin like that, don't we? I am what I am, so why should I be any different? I can't stop it. I can't help it, right? I can't control what I do. The devil made me do it. Whatever the excuse is, we say, well, I can't change it, so why bother? I'll just keep doing more of it. Maybe grace will increase. Maybe there'll be more for me to take in, right? No. Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you, poured, given for you, Remember me. Remember, for us, the church, now, remember what I went through out of my great love for you. And so the disciple is probably a little unsure of what to do with that. Not going to lie. You know, I, I don't think I would 
have known what to do. And these guys knew the, the word, but there was confusion, I'm sure. But they would go on with the meal. You know, they would continue enjoying the Passover feast. They would eat lamb and they would eat more lamb. They would have fry, all sorts of lamb. I don't know how they would all prepare it. But they would enjoy that time together. And isn't it interesting that Jesus spends this family relational time with those 12 disciples. The last supper we call it. Who does he gather together? His disciples. Those he was sending out, he brings them together. That's his inner circle, his, his family, not by blood or not by relation, but out of love and out of identity with him, out of identification with him, their savior. They might not even have understood that yet, but they knew, as Peter testifies, this is the Messiah. And so they were beginning to see how the pieces were coming together. And so they've eaten the meal, and in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What new covenant? What, you're getting rid of the old covenant? Jesus, you've already made some, some comments about the law and how the entire law can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And now you're saying there's this new covenant? Well, what would, what would a, a God-fearing Hebrew of that day think of if someone has the audacity to say that? Because that's blasphemous, people. If a random guy says, I'm giving you a new covenant in my blood... The only person that could say that in the Jewish people would know was the Son of God. And what's the big deal about a covenant? Well, when he calls it the new covenant in his blood, he's contrasting his atoning work, his shedding of blood with the old covenants just pouring out, spilling a ton of blood. Blood was a major part of remembrance of the covenant. How do I know? Well, when you go back to Exodus, when they're honoring, the, the whole Ten Commandments have been given. Moses has written down all the law, okay? It's all been given. It's all been explained. And then, at the end of Exodus, toward the end, Moses took half of the blood and put it on in bowls, and the other half splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. So in this celebration of the covenant that God had given, he read it again to all the people. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We don't think about that, do we? How about if I just come out and I go to the local hospital and I grab a bunch of O-negative blood and I just start spraying it all over the room? That's not going to be met with, well, anything but get him out of here kind of response. But yet, the memory of the old covenant was one of a bloody mess. Blood was spilled to deliver the Israelite people. Blood was shed so that people could be delivered. And so that's the picture in their minds as they're understanding this idea of the new covenant. And it goes even further because 
Jeremiah actually talks about the new covenant. And likely, some of the people around that table would have known and would have remembered, oh yeah, that prophet Jeremiah had something to say about this. And if you look in your Bibles in Jeremiah 31, listen carefully to the prophecies given way before Jesus was around. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Wow. Now, we think of the forgetfulness of God and we take it for granted. God is God, right? He's all-knowing. Remember? We say he's omniscient. He knows everything. Well, if you're all-knowing, can you forget? No. So is the Bible inconsistent with the character of God? My Bible doctrine, guys, is the Bible inconsistent with the character of God? Come on, men. No. Good, Albert's with me. No. It is by grace and by choice that God wills himself to forget because of his great love for us and because of what Jesus has done. I will be their God. Notice, I will be their God. It's not us getting to him. We talk about that a lot. It's he's come to us. He gives himself to us. He pays the bill. They will be my people. Then he brings us in. He gathers us to himself. This was an ultimate act that would forever draw us to the heart of God through new birth, through Christ, making us holy, making us pure, making us righteous, making us new, remembering their sins no more. F.F. Bruce says, it is because of his grace that he has determined to forgive them, not in spite of his holiness, but in harmony with it. In other words, it fits because of who God is, that this new covenant brings complete forgiveness because it's a transformation of the heart. It's not just an external sign of sacrifice. It's bigger than that. You see, the old covenant was written on stone. They provided no internal power to live them out. There was great benefit in knowing the word of God, but in the Old Testament, you honored what was written on in stone. But in the new covenant, where is it written? On our minds and on our hearts. Think about it like this. Dr. Christian Barnard, any of you know who he is? A couple of you remember him. Anybody from South Africa should certainly know a claim to fame and our, our medical f- uh, professors might as well. He was the first surgeon ever to do a heart transplant. And he impulsively asked his patient, Dr. Philip Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? 
On a subsequent evening, the men stood in a room of the Grootscher Hospital, I'm sure I mispronounced that, sorry John, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Barnard went up to a cupboard, took down a glass container and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside that container was Dr. Blayberg's old heart. For a moment he stood there in stunned silence. The first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Finally, he spoke for 10 minutes, plying Dr. Barnard with all sorts of technical questions. Then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back and he turned it away and he left it forever, never to look at it again. This is what Christ does for us. God has written his laws within us for those that have come to believe on him as our savior. Those of us that have come to experience the great atoning work of the lamb of God. We get to say that was my old heart. I am no longer identified with it. I am a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Not because of what I've done, but because of who Jesus is the Lamb of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. If you look over at Hebrews, just listen to a little bit of the first eight or so, first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 10. You see, the law, talking about the old covenant, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. It can never be the same by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. The sacrifices couldn't do it. And if it would, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? But those are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take sins away. They couldn't do it. They could cover it. They couldn't take it away so that sins would be remembered no more. A perfect sacrifice had to be offered up. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices, burnt offerings, and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, you could follow the law perfectly, but your heart wasn't right. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, by the will of the Son to obey the will of the Father and go to the cross, and rise victoriously over sin once for all, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Can I get an amen? amen? Jesus Christ knew exactly what was coming. And he gathered his disciples around him. And he sat in fellowship with them. And he enjoyed a meal with them in communion. We sometimes come to the table, and I got to be honest, this probably isn't the best way to practice communion. If you look in Acts 2, you see where they went house to house. They did it in, in homes just 
like the Passover where they would celebrate together in little communities where they could discuss it and they could worship together. We kind of do it by ourselves in one big group. Yeah, we're together. But this was meant as a relational remembrance of who Jesus is and that he has changed everything. As we come now to the communion table, I want us to pause. Think of yourself trying to pay for that feast you got at Felix without being able to pay. So grand in scale that not only did you eat yourself sick because you saw the bill, but because you just kept eating out of gluttony. You just kept taking what wasn't yours. You just kept taking it in because it was so good. But it wasn't, and you knew it wasn't. It wasn't good for you. You couldn't pay it back. It wasn't right that you were doing this. Yet you kept doing it. And then you get the bill, and you realize you cannot pay for it. And then you realize there's no way ever you could make restitution for what you've done. That's where we find ourselves when we look at communion. There is no way we could ever have paid for our sins. Couldn't do it. Not a single one of us could do that. But then Jesus says, it's okay. Jesus paid it all. He got it. It's called grace. That God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might enjoy eternal life and that we might enjoy the full lives he's ordained and willed for us to live. Jesus knew full well when he was ushering in a new covenant, he was changing everything. And sometimes I think maybe we rush through the celebration of the Eucharist or of the communion table and we begin to just get through it half-heartedly. But you see, as we transition, Jesus gave communion as a remembrance of who he is and what he's done. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've come to the place where you realize, I cannot pay for my sin. I cannot pay for all the ways I have done wrong. I cannot live up to the standard of pure holiness and righteousness and perfection that God has laid before me, which that's reality. We cannot. But you've said, but Jesus can. And Jesus, through his own blood, made a way that I can entertain fellowship with him for all eternity. You are welcome to join with us in celebrating communion together. But as we do, I'd like us to pause. And Francis Chan, you know I love Francis Chan. He makes just a couple of comments that I'd like us to consider. And as you listen to him, it's nothing that I haven't alluded to earlier, but consider how we prepare ourselves to worship together communion style. Communion, the very word means you can't do it by yourself. I don't have communion with myself. It doesn't work. I'm like, Mike, here, yes, here. No, you, I, I, I talk to myself a lot. Just ask the staff. But it doesn't work that way. Communion is together. We remember our Savior. So let's watch together. 
You understand when, when Jesus instituted communion, it was such an intimate and beautiful picture. In fact, Jesus, when he gathered his disciples together, he looks at them, he goes, ah, oh, I've longed for this moment. Jesus was about to die on the cross and he goes, I just long to get my friends together. And there was a, there was a relationship there. And then he looks at his friends and he says, my body's gonna be broken for you. My blood is going to be spilled out for you, and, it's, it's, and this cup is going to represent that. And, and, and he says, so when you break this bread, I want you to remember my body that was broken for you. Because when you take this cup, remember my blood that was shed for you, because this is what the forgiveness is going to come from. And there was, a, there was an intense moment in there as he explained what was about to happen. And he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. This is the most amazing thing that anyone will ever do for you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for you. And I don't want you to forget this. And so every time you break the bread, remember my body. Every time you drink this cup, remember my blood that was shed for you and do this to proclaim my death until I return.